Hi there. Welcome to Mental Health Professionals Network podcast series. MHPN's aim is to promote and celebrate interdisciplinary, collaborative mental health care. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the book club. My name's Ricky Aitman. I'm a psychiatrist and I've been working in the area since the mid-1980s. And uh, today we'll be discussing a classic textbook called Persuasion and Healing by Jerome Frank. This book came out in three different editions, one in 1961, one in 1973 and one in 1991. And I've heard that this is not the only time Mr Frank's going to be discussed on the book club. I've heard that there is another learned duo who are going to discuss some of his work as well. My guest, Dr Paul Kamel. Hello, thanks for having me. Paul, I'm, I'm so glad that you agreed to do this because I think you're the guy that's going to help me uh, understand my feelings about the particular book. Before we talk about the book, tell us a little about yourself. Very good. So we met five years ago uh, when I came across to Victoria to work at Royal Melbourne Hospital and we've been involved in post-emergency and emergency mental health and collaborating on that, which is fantastic. And my broader interests have been in psychotherapy for a long time. So I've trained in psychotherapy and I've been involved in the college and a few other places uh, training junior doctors, medical students, up to psychiatrists in psychotherapy. Okay, fantastic. Now, the book we're going to do is a classic text and it's called Persuasion and Healing which I think is a fascinating title for a, for a book, Persuasion and Healing. What have they got to do with each other? And it's written by a man called Jerome Frank. And it was first released in 1961, and there's been subsequent editions, and they're different. Uh, they've been updated in 1973 and 1991. So this is going to be a, a, a good old-fashioned chat, about fireside chat about psychotherapy and what it all means. And Certainly Paul and I have been reflecting on it when we talk about how you help people who have been suicidal or come into emergency departments. Obviously, there's no magic pill for those people generally, so it's all to do with talking to people. And so we're hoping to learn from our discussion with each other and we're hoping everyone enjoys it. Um, why are we doing this one? Well, first of all, I think the name in itself is very interesting, Persuasion and Healing. Um, what's persuasion got to do with healing? Uh, that's the question, I guess, and it's an interesting title. You know, I first read this book, Paul, back in the mid-1980s, a bit like you. I was just trying to discover what this whole field of um, science and health and healthcare, et cetera, was. And someone put me onto it. What Jerome Frank does in this book is he, he kind of does a deep dive into psychotherapy and what it what it's all about. He Obviously, in his mind, he, he, he probably had, I reckon, two things. He kind of touches on this throughout the book. One, the first thing was that People can change uh, the way they think and behave, uh, and uh, people do, um, and so that's a positive thing because people can get over difficult mental and uh, behavioural attitudinal issues. But he also um, uh, realises it can be it, it can happen when people are. Um, getting formal assistance for their psychological problems, but also people can change due to non-health um, care uh, interventions. And he talks in the, in the book about secular, uh, religious um, uh, uh, and other kind of um, ways of changing people's minds and how they think. The second thing was that he, he comments that there was hundreds of schools 
of psychotherapeutic um, thinking and none of them seem to be any better than the others when it comes to outcomes. The original book's got, in, I think, in each chapter, and I think all, all of the editions do quotations from Alice in Wonderland, and he uses that notion of the, the dodo bird verdict of every, every player wins a prize and, and every psychotherapy seemingly works, but maybe they're all similar, more similar than different, and they all work in a similar way. So we should focus more on the common factors and understand what they are. That's kind of what he's saying, isn't he? He is. Yeah. I mean... I want to get on to those common factors, yeah. but there's just a couple of things. One thing he does say is that he had never heard of a school of psychotherapy that had actually closed its own doors saying, uh, we're inferior to the others, Yes, which is interesting. I, don't, I, don't, I haven't heard of any, but maybe they have. Um, and I just want to quickly touch on the main chapters of the book. Uh, he, he has an introduction where he's talking about these common features of psychotherapy. He has a section on uh, religion and its ways of... Uh, religious um, ideas can influence people's thinking. He talks about what what he calls re- religio-magical healing, and this is all the things from um, shamans in um, undeveloped countries through to uh, he has a large section on congregations of people going to lords in, in France and, mm. and being healed. He's got a section on the placebo effect. He's got a section on uh, the, the qualities of the therapist. And he also has sections on each of the types of of psychotherapy or the major kind of groups, psychotherapeutic, psychotherapeutic schools. Anyway, let's hit common features. I've put it down into two things that he mentions. First of all, he talks about that all the psychotherapies have focus on emotions, cognitions and behaviour. And the, the difference between them has got something to do with what the emphasis is on. Mm. So this is a very big, broad kind of simplistic view of the psychotherapies. But it's important because he mentions that a number of times in the book. Mm. He then goes on to talk about what he feels are the the common features in all psychotherapies. And I'll, I'll go through them. Um, the first one he describes is an emotionally charged, confiding relationship with a helping person. Mm. I just want to make a little note of the emotionally charged because he makes a, a point later on uh, especially when he's talking about cults and people being uh, recruited into cults, usually happens in a highly emo- emotionally mm. charged state of mind. Mm. People are primed and suggestible and they engage and they're influenced. Yeah. Mm. And he also makes a comment that one of the ways people t- used to try and avoid brainwashing and things in in uh, you know, previous uh, eras was to remain unemotional. Mm. So... Emotion to him is a very important factor in the psychotherapeutic mm-hmm. um, situation. Just to make a brief comment about that, I think that's, as a psychotherapist, you notice the significance and the power of the context that you work in and you're always aware of how privileged you are because people are in that prime state when they come to see you and often you haven't done anything at that point but they're kind of in a state of preparedness and readiness and, and being primed when they come through the door and, and you're aware of that context and what he talks about there of... Um, how ready a person is and emotionally charged they are to, to reveal things to you and talk to you. So they're kind of primed when they come in. It's very yeah. powerful, very that, powerful. That kind of rawness of mm. the, the, the initial interaction with a stranger. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah, no. The second thing he talks about is a healing setting and he talks about that both in a formal uh, therapist type of situation but also in, in other religious and secular kind of settings where, where the, the aim is to try and change people's 
way of thinking, and, and, and so he talks about the setting. The third is that there's a rationale behind the therapy and a conceptual scheme. He also calls this, interestingly, in, the, in, the, in this, the 1991 version, he also uses the term the myth of mm. that particular psychotherapy. Mm. Mm. I don't know whether that's particularly apt, but what he's saying is there's got to be some kind of concept there mm. which people can actually feel and, and believe that it's, it's, mm. it makes sense. You're communicating a rationale, and I guess the myth side of it is that idea that you have faith in it as a practitioner or believe in it and you're communicating that and that's where the persuasion comes in, that idea that you have a rationale and approach that's going to help the person and you convey that when you see them. And as a practitioner, then you're, you're buying into it and, and asking the uh, person who's emotionally charged and primed to see you to buy into it as well. So there's that exchange. That's where the persuasion comes in, I guess. Yeah, yeah well, I think that's probably right. That, the, the word persuasion really struck me when I first read, mm. Mm. saw the title of this book mm. because... You know, you always think of the term persuasion as as someone trying to talk you into some smoke, uh, you know, snake oil kind of thing. You mm. know, um, mm. but I think he means in a different way mm. Mm. that people can influence other people. That's right. It's not necessarily about manipulation, is it? But it's something about two people buying into something together. And and uh, I suppose the practitioner, whether they are ascribing to a belief about uh, what they have to offer or a, or a myth about what they have to offer, but they're really conveying that they're convinced that it's going to help and, and that expectation of something being helpful and the person um, engaging in that, I think. Mm. Yeah. And the fourth one is that there is a ritual or a procedure mm. that goes with the therapy. And he, he makes a point that there has to be active participation between the person receiving the therapy and the therapist. Mm. Uh, these are the common features. So just going through them again, emotionally charged, confiding relationship, a healing setting, a rationale concept, and a ritual or procedure. Mm. So, Paul, your, your involvement in psychotherapy is far more than just having an interest. You, mm. You're actually... What's your actual role in terms of the psychotherapy world in Australia at the moment, right. official position. Yes, yeah, so I'm a passionate advocate of psychotherapy, particularly for psychiatrists in training and, and seeing that as a central, an essential part of uh, what um, psychiatrists need to learn and how they need to practice. So I'm involved in advanced training of psychotherapy for people that want to subspecialise in that area, but also in the general aspects of, of College of Psychiatry training, which have to do with psychotherapy. So I've been in a number of committees and had chair roles with the college and locally in Victoria and previously South Australia, I've had training director type roles in psychotherapy. Um, and I try to demonstrate and reflect where psychotherapy can fit in, not only just doing pure psychotherapy in private practice, but also in these types of roles. Like we've worked together in like the HOPE program where you can have a, a psychiatrist, psychotherapist in the trenches in an emergency department or seeing people after they've come out of um, hospital immediately and you can apply psychotherapeutic principles into the management. And another uh, area that I think is really important uh, which presents very, very commonly in those kinds of areas is personality disorder as well, where psychotherapy is the key treatment and really getting a sense of, again, not only specialist psychotherapists off in isolation doing that kind of work, but also how we can all apply psychotherapy in our practice. And that can be GPs, mental health nurses in the emergency department uh, and general psychiatrists. So as a person who's been really, as I said, you're an author, you've 
thought about this as being such a huge part of your career. How do you feel about what some would see as a kind of, he's kind of stripping things down to such a simplification yeah. and kind of saying, well, maybe this is it yeah. in a way. I mean, he, it's actually far more to it than that. Just mm. let me make a comment about the book. It's actually really easy to read. Yes, yes. It's not like reading a um, something like Up to Date or something mm. like that. Mm. It doesn't have a whole lot of stats yeah. and bits. And, it's, a, it's, a, it's a conversational book, Yes, really. yes. But nonetheless, I think when you, when we were talking about this before the show, there are some people who would have taken offence at his mm. statements. I mean, mm. from your perspective, what's your thought there? What sort of emotions did it arouse yeah. in you? Well, I think I agree with how he writes and, dare I say it, I think he is quite persuasive, you know. So when you read it, you get hooked and you, you buy into what yeah. he has to say. Yeah. And yeah. he's an eminent psychiatrist. He was a, a professor of psychiatry at Johns Hopkins. Um, he's writing about the field of psychotherapy as a psychiatrist. So there's that a sense of a foot in two camps. He's looking at it from the outside, but he's also looking at it as a practitioner. What I connect with a lot, which I have in common with him, I think is this idea that he's contextualising psychotherapy practice and he looks at it historically and looks at links with, as you say, um, shamanism, religious practices, um, mind control in in communist countries, uh, advertising, and then he goes into the, more of the medical field and looks at uh, things like the placebo effect. He's looking at these kinds of phenomena uh, and saying, well, in contemporary society, psychotherapy is very, very pervasive now. And, and how does it work? He looks at it in an anthropological way. We're doing a lot of this now. Uh, what does it mean that we're doing a lot of it and how does it work? And can we apply a sceptical or, or, or a kind of critical eye on it? Uh, he, I guess one of the questions I'd have about it as a psychotherapist now is the idea that he's kind of promoting with common factors there's this idea well yeah he's distilling something down and that's very important and and that's done even today when we look at uh, personality disorder for example where there's all of these impressive highly sophisticated brand name therapies but there's really um, important thinking about well what common factors approaches in personality disorder treatment there's a similar kind of thing that's done there that's really important to do, but you can equally then become very relativistic about this. So, well, they're all much of a muchness. You don't really need to think about excellence or, or technique or, or applying things in a tailored way in specific situations. And, and I suppose looking back at the book, it's interesting He, I think, towards the end, the common factors really comes at the end. He gets to it right at the end. Uh, and he kind of says, well... Maybe there's just one situation where one therapy is more um, important than other types of therapy, and he talks about phobias and, and desensitisation. Mm. Yeah, Whereas I think nowadays we've got a lot more of a stra stratified approach to different problems than just reaching that conclusion. I think there's a lot of domains of problems where certain therapies are better than others, and I think the, the science of empirical research, which he's very good at distilling down in his book, for his arguments, I think is, is you know, really there, there is some science to look at different approaches. Uh, but there's always the importance of saying, well, it's not just about being evangelical about an approach and saying, because I've trained in this and this has got all of this evidence, it's better than everything else. You always need to look at common factors, what differentiation, what might be Im important and better. Um, yeah. I mean, one of the things that's always struck me about psychotherapy is the, the, the therapy comes from a hypothesis. Mm. Someone 
strongly believes that a certain element of the human condition mm. is is malleable mm. through some technique. Mm-hmm. And most um, core texts on any particular psychotherapy are big times. Yes. You know, if I think of the, the psychotherapies that have been kind of invented in my career time, probably got there just at the start of the CBT movement. You, you, you move through the, the, the DBTs and the mentalizations and the mindfulnesses mm. and the acts and the, you know, there's, there's all this type of stuff. I mean, the primal scream probably um, preceded me a bit, you know, mm-hmm. but I was a Beatles fan, so I knew about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, so the, the, the thing by distilling it down, you're kind of saying, that big time with all those big words mm, mm. and all those invented words, a lot of them got a whole lot of neologisms in them. Indeed. And do you really need to do that? Do mm, you really mm. need to do that hard yakka? Mm, you know? Mm. And all of us have cracked open a book like that in the past and kind of not being able to keep your eyes open after about mm, 10 mm. minutes, you know. Mm. So to some extent, what you're saying, I get, but to some extent it leads a slightly, I suppose, sceptical, lazy mm. person to jump over the hard bits, mm, mm. to hurdle all the, the hard yakka mm, mm. that comes to with with kind of truly understanding a psychotherapeutic technique. Um, look, I want to I want to get back to that, yeah. but I, I'd love to. There was a, in in my edition of the book, he talks he talks about two things which I found really quite interesting. And I know that you've thought about these things far more than me with all the reading you've done. But first of all, he talks about the therapist being a rhetorician, mm. so using rhetoric. And I just want to and, use, and the, that's where persuasion comes into yeah, play. I want, to, I want to just talk talk about the. Um, he he quotes Aristotle uh-huh. <laughs> that someone who uses rhetoric seeks to influence hearers by evincing a person personal character or ethos that will win the confidence of the listener. Mm. So, in other words, mm. they have to be able to work with the person who's listening and understand kind of where they're kind of coming from, so they can then deliver their view. Mm-hmm. The second thing, engaging the person's emotions. And the third thing is providing a truth, real or apparent, by argument. Mm-hmm. So being able to convince someone that this is the way. Now, rhetoric, uh, most people use that term now in a very kind of derogatory way. It means rhetoric means empty, airless. Pers- Again, it's the kind of probably the, the negative or pejorative sense of persuasion, isn't it? Yeah. Whereas there might be something positive or constructive about persuasion. Yeah. But what, what he's saying is that if you represent a certain psychotherapeutic style, mm. you've got to some extent to sell it to the person. Mm. Mm. And he, what he's saying is that probably the really effective therapists are able to probably do that slightly better than some. So they're better at the use of rhetoric. Mm. That's what mm. he's saying. So mm. uh, I'm, I'm interested in that. The other th- term he used is the term hermeneutics, which I'd heard before, but I hadn't really, it's not really something you talk about hermeneutics mm. over your breakfast every day. But, mm. you know, the idea becomes how you interpret a text. Mm. And he talks about the patient as a text. So the mm. patient is someone who has a story mm. about their history or their symptoms or whatever. And it's up to the therapist and the patients to come to some kind of interpretation. And it's probably got to be shared. Mm. They've got to be able to share that interpretation to some extent. Mm. So you come to me with your panic attack and 
we talk about your history and a terrible thing happened to you at school or whatever and we, we start developing an interpretation of how it all kind of mm. works out. So those two things, uh, which are kind of driven by the therapist, mm. I was very interested in. I'm just interested in your views. Hermeneutics is very close to my heart, so some of my writings about hermeneutics and hermeneutic philosophers like Martin Heidegger, Hans Georg Gadamer and Paul Ricoeur, all of those philosophers engaged with psychiatry and psychoanalysis to varying degrees and wrote about it. And, and yes, hermeneutics was originally the discipline of studying texts and interpreting the meaning of texts, originally scripture, uh, and then it uh, expanded out into thinking about how we interpret other things. And there's still these notions of um, meaning, textual meaning and narrative that are imposed on situations, so human situations. So all of those thinkers think about, well, what does interpretation mean in a setting like psychoanalysis or psychiatry where we are narrativizing, we're creating a story or uh, a textual meaning or an interpretation of what's going on for a person. And that's a big part of psychotherapy is this idea of coming to a common understanding of what's going on for the person and helping them create or construct meaning and a narrative about things. What's interesting about that is, I guess, is truth in that? Is there a story that's... Uh, it's about a truth or is it about coming up with a convenient fiction or is it coming up with a myth? And, and they're, they're, they're the questions of... Because I think there's this lovely book t talking about stories and interpretation you may have heard of called The Good Story, uh, J.M. Kurtzie, the Nobel laureate, and yeah. Arabella Kurtz, who's a psychoanalyst, having a debate in the form of writing to each other about, well, I'm a writer and you're a psychoanalyst. What stories do we tell and how are they similar and different? You know, you tell, yeah. you come to a story, an agreed story about a person's life when you interpret it with the person and I write stories uh, which are fictional, what's similar and what's different. And as therapists, are we invested in a notion of truth, a person developing insight, coming up with um, a, a truthful understanding of their issues and, and working through issues to have more insight and awareness about themselves. I guess rhetoric uh, coming into play there is this idea that what you're about to do with the person isn't just some ordinary conversation or meeting, it's the idea that there's going to be something very meaningful that's going to happen and important and truthful that's going to happen, whatever your method of therapy is. Believing that in yourself and, and convincing the, the patient to some degree or the client to some degree that you're going to go through that process. And, and some of the hermeneutic philosophers talk about, Gadamer talks about uh, a fusion of horizons, which is this idea that you come together and your perspectives somehow meld. There's an asymmetry there because the therapist is meant to be an expert. You know, we're meant to be an expert in, in things, psychopathology or therapy, but we're not an expert in that person. So that person's got to reveal their truth to you as the therapist and you've got to use your expertise to fuse things and create meaning together. Well, that's, that's right. I mean, is there a, a word for the opposite of hermeneutics? Because one of the things I've always <laughs> noticed over the years is when you say you're in a, a case conference yeah, and someone says some, makes an interpretation of what's going on and it jars really And bad. it doesn't make any sense. And yeah. it doesn't make sense. Yeah. It might seem fine to them, but it just doesn't sit. Yeah. So it's kind of like um, uh, you kind of go, that's utter crap in your mind. Yeah, yeah. And we do it, I suppose we do it all the time in case conference. Mm. You and I at the Royal Melbourne for the last, I don't know how many years, 30 years probably more. Yeah, yeah. Every Thursday there's been a grand round and, and often these moments occur. 
yeah. where there's an interpretation of the situation by someone. Yeah. And suddenly a formulation, you, a conceptualization. And you go kind of, what? Yeah, yeah. You know. Um, and that's what's interesting when you get a group of psychiatrists and or psychotherapists in a room and they try to, you know, so that's different to doctor and patient or therapist mm. and client. That's actually multiple uh, practitioners discussing what they think the truth is or what their reading of the truth yeah, is. So it's, yeah. it's interesting, isn't it, that process? Well, well, and one of the things he does mention is, of course, that a person's history, there's, there's a multitude of interpretations. Yeah, yeah. So there's not anything right. It's how it fits in the common interpretation between the, 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 the therapist and the, the person receiving the therapy. Mm, mm. Look, um, that, that was fascinating, um, hearing that you've, you've been a... Hermeneutics. You should get a hermeneutics T-shirt. I might yes. get one. Okay. Um, I'll get one. I'll, I'll get one. I'll just say hermeneutics novice. Mm, mm, Would mm. that be all right? Yes, please. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a very useful term and a useful field to yeah. think about and study because when you think about it, that's some of what we're doing is we're narrativizing, we're creating stories, uh, uh, and we're trying to understand in those kinds of terms, interpret meaning, find meaning in things. So actually, going back to the philosophy or the science of how we do that and and thinking about it in that objective way and taking that into the the realm of psychotherapy is helpful the other the other way he the other term he uses apologia mm-hmm. now my understanding of that was that these were written by um, people who were sucking up to kings and queens <laughs> and all that kind of thing to yeah. say to to write this kind of personal history of them which was so yeah. amazingly incredible yeah. um, but uh, that was, it's interesting he uses these terms. And yes. it, is, it is very fascinating. I, I really felt that was a bit, I kind of, I know in the earlier editions of the book that he doesn't comment about these no, things. No, it's interesting that there are these new lays in the, in the later edition. And I, yeah. I note it's co-authored with... His daughter. His daughter. Yeah, 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 yeah. the later edition. Mm. Now, I want to, um, you know, we're going to run out of time and this is fascinating, but I want to talk to you about why this book influenced me so much mm. and, and kind of left me stranded in a way. Yeah. One thing, I absolutely loved it when I read it. I th- thought that the, the, the way when he talked about uh, re- religious conversion or the way he talked mm. about um, uh, the, the brainwashing techniques and things, mm. I, it suddenly I thought, wow, this is, you know, it's opened my eyes. This is, this is incredibly broad-minded big picture. Puts things stuff. into context, doesn't yeah. it? Historical context. What we're doing now isn't just about science and 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 being a, a psychiatrist or a psychologist, but there's this history and we've got a place in history. And yes, we've got more of a medical, scientific, technological yeah. culture, but it's similar to these other parts of history, religious or political um, movements that have, have had similar roles, experts yeah. with similar roles. Yeah. yeah well, look, I, I read it, I loved it, and, I, and, and yet it, it left me stranded. How so? It left me stranded because <laughs> I tell you what, I wasn't sure which dogma to follow from mm, then on. Mm. You know, I'd be dipping into a bit of psychoanalytic thinking and cognitive behaviour therapy and mm. rational emotive therapy and, mm. and you know, behaviour therapy and all this. And Is I, that a problem? It's not a problem, but yeah. I never felt... I, I occasionally wanted to just be able to be converted in... Into yes. a particular yeah. idea and become, you know, this is my thing, mm, you know. Mm, mm. And I found myself, I was kind of always flitting around. Yeah. Anyway, he, he actually covers this. He, mm. The Ricky Aitman conundrum. I'll, I'll read it to you. <laughs> yeah, read it out. <laughs> Though therapists with different training may achieve similar results, it would be wrong to conclude that training in psychotherapy is unnecessary. Most training programs emphasise particular conceptual schemes and assort associated techniques. These included behaviour therapies, group therapies, and a variety of interview approaches. 
By teaching particular skills, all training programs indirectly enhance the trainee's ability to maintain a therapeutic attitude. So there he's saying it's important to at least have a technique. Mm. I guess he's kind of saying... And ascribe to it, believe in it. You can be a fast bowler or you can be a spin bowler or you can be a swing bowler. Mm. You know, you can still get wickets. Yes, yes, yes. In particular, they strengthen the novice's self-confidence through mastery of a procedure, Mm. induction into a professional role and status, and support of like-minded colleagues. Mm. The mastery of one or more therapies through training creates and maintains the therapist's confidence, which in turn may be a therapeutic factor that enhances patients' expectations of help. So what he's also, he's alluding there that by having a kind of belief system about a certain therapy, you are able to use your rhetorical skills to to help have the therapy patient feel that this is going to be good for me. Mm. Do you think not having that, not having a particular... I suppose, orthodoxy or ascribing to a particular model of psychotherapy, you can't have that level of confidence or persuasion? Well, you probably can to some extent, but it's, it's always going to be an, an intellectual itch you want to scratch <laughs> because it's kind of like, am I missing something? Yeah, yeah. Am I missing some secret? Yeah. Some, some something there that would get me up even to a different level? Mm. To, to make me better at the job. Mm. So, as I say, it kind of left me stranded for a long time, this book. I, I, I floated around and uh, mm. I would have liked to have gone to one of those, you know, let's just say, pretend there was a, um, a big, strong medical psychotherapy movement in Mildura, for example. Go to the Mildura school and learn their method, you know. That's what, yeah, you're a card-carrying, a card-carrying member person. Of the, and you, yeah. you can stand in meetings and say, well, you know, I would do it this way and you were all talking mm. rubbish, you know, etc. Um, never had that. It's interesting. As a psychotherapist, one of the things I like is being a psychiatrist as well is psychotherapy in the College of Psychiatry I think is an open church and a broad school and it does allow for, and, and people have debates and ambivalence about the term eclecticism, mm. there's also another term that's related called integration. You know, So there's this idea that you can have different models that can have common factors or similarities and you can Im- integrate and take good parts of different models and apply different models in different contexts well. And there's an appreciation, and I think this is where I come into things because I've, I've had a similar ambivalence over the years about, in some sense, if I'm... I can admire the idea of being in one school and being, you know, a total advocate of that school, but I, I also am suspicious of that, you know, and I think that I could feel a bit constricted by that. And and I like the idea of openness to other models and flexibility about other models. And also I like the idea about complexity and, and room for doubt, the idea that, well, one model often isn't enough, you know, and, and the mm. idea, I, I, I'm always a bit suspicious of zeal and, and, and people being too orthodox. I like the idea that the human condition and the work we do is very, very complex. We're always learning and there's room for things being bigger than we can comprehend, I guess. And and so I, I learn from different models and I like to appreciate different models, look at them critically, um, but keep an open mind. So I think that's that's might be a way around uh, this this sense of, well, I'm disillusioned now and, and they're all much of a muchness and, and the, yeah. the dodo bird verdict wins out. So I want to ask you a question <laughs> before we finish. Yeah. Do you reckon this is a book for a, 
a novice or a book for someone who's had a few ideas drummed into them to kind of then reflect on what they've learned? I think it's good for both, to be honest. I read it as a novice before. I went into clinical training and I read it with some of the real classic tombs of the history and the of psychiatry and anti-psychiatry. So I yes. read people like Irving Goffman and, and Thomas Saz and R.D. Lang, David yes. Cooper, Michel Foucault and, and him. And I liked that perspective, critical and historical perspective. And I think it's really good for people to go in with that, you know. And, but also, looking back on it now when I reread it, I really liked the way it um, that he described uh, the psychoanalytic training and the psychoanalytic institutes and, and the identification with psychoanalytic practice and equally people that ascribe to cognitive and behavioural yeah. therapies. And I, I think it really describes the cultures of, of them or some of the pitfalls of the cultures of these schools very, very well. And I think as a psychiatrist, looking at, at this and having a critical perspective and open mind is really important. And I think you can be reminded of that. This you know, The edition I'm reading is... Uh, that I reread is fifty years old, and the yes. original edition in nineteen in the early sixties, it's, it's still a lot of it applies. You know, you've got the people that are evangelists of a particular school, and you've got lots of schools not agreeing and not getting along, yeah, and you've got yeah. to be pragmatic and you've got to look at the common factors. And I like that. The thing that I, I'd go back to is the idea that you always want to keep up to speed with developments, and I think what is good. Uh, that comes out of different schools is is novel research and novel ideas and practices and theories. I must so, admit, I've always liked the idea who, of people who put their own, they invent their own psychotherapy, but they pit it against another one to see whether it works. I've always exactly. liked that. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a, it's a, you might call it kind of some kind of scientific approach, but but there's something more honest about that than just continually pushing the same barrel. Mm, mm. Look, we're going to have to finish in a minute. Have you got any other last comments, Paul? Last comment. So I'd encourage people to read it. And I think some of the the work in the earlier editions are a product of their time, but there's still a lot of uh, truth in them. So I think it's worthwhile reading it. And I think, like I said, that as, as psychiatrists and mental health professionals having that um, open mind about different models of psychotherapy and seeing what's good in different models and taking um, that out of the different models you don't necessarily need to succumb to a kind of hopeless relativism like they're all much of a muchness and yeah. um, there are common factors, yes, and that's really important, but there are important things that differentiate models nowadays too. Yeah. Okay, so this is pretty much all we've got time for, folks, as they say in the uh, <laughs> classics. This is, of course, the book club and what a great idea this is. If you want to read more, you can go onto the, uh, the, the website and you can look up the links. You can find out a little bit more about uh, the speakers at the various, in the various book club meetings meetings and get more information of anything if anything we've mentioned any other texts or anything they'll that hopefully be there you'll be able to look them up and be sure to tune in next time and uh, hopefully everyone enjoyed themselves so thanks very much thanks paul thank you very much bye for now visit mhpn.org.au to find out more about our online professional program including podcasts webinars as well as our face-to-face interdisciplinary mental health networks across australia 